Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13, as we continue our study of this magnificent letter to the church at Rome. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word, Romans 9, verses 6 through 13, and uh, perhaps I don't need to remind you, but I will anyway, uh, this is God's word, this is not the word of man. This is the word of God, and so uh, let us pay close attention to it. Romans 9, beginning in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done Uh, nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Here ends the reading of God's word. May the Lord bless it to us. Let us pray. Our Father, as we come to this text of scripture, we ask, O Lord, that you would teach us We pray that you would clear the decks of our minds of any furniture that is unbiblical, uh, that is founded in human fallen reason uh, and imagination rather than in uh, the word of God. Uh, We ask, O Lord, that you would teach us, strengthen us, comfort us uh, through this text as once again we are led to Christ your son. We pray in Jesus' name. Some sage advice I received many years ago is to stay away from certain topics of conversation at family gatherings. Perhaps you know what I mean. Topics that may have the potential of disrupting, say, a Thanksgiving dinner. What are those topics? Well, you can probably guess. Topics like politics, parenting, religion. And maybe here in South Carolina, the Palmetto Bowl. To be sure, there is a time and place for these conversations. But it's, it's not every time and in every place. That's the kind of annoying, reformed person who thinks every time and every place is an opportunity to talk about the most controversial, weighty things in existence. But these topics, while important, are not for every time and in every place. Divine election and predestination may also not be the best subjects to raise during annual family gatherings. Uh, When have those conversations ever gone well over turkey and cranberry sauce? Well, maybe if everyone already believes those doctrines, those conversations can go well, but typically not. But while family gatherings may not be the best context for discussing weighty topics like divine freedom and election and predestination, a worship service where we've come to Romans 9 most certainly is. It most certainly is. Indeed, there couldn't be a more appropriate time and place for us to learn about God's sovereign freedom and the divine election of sinners. Now, some of you may be here visiting Uh, with family, maybe coming in the doors for the first time and thinking, oh, here we go. I walk into a Presbyterian church, and here they go. They're talking about election and predestination. All the stereotypes I heard about these Presbyterians are now coming to full fruition. Well, let me tell you, this is my 85th sermon in Romans. And sermon number 85 has brought us to Romans 9 and verse 6 and following. A chapter which begins three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11, that deal with God's relationship to Israel. And how can it be that God is faithful and yet Israel has rejected the Messiah? 
How can it be? These are the questions that are being answered. And as we come to this somewhat controversial subject, we need to remember that Romans 9 is God's inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word every bit as much as Genesis 1.1 and John 3.16. This chapter was not added to the Bible by John Calvin or by the Westminster Assembly. Therefore, it must not be ignored. It must not be passed over. It must not be outright rejected. I've had people say to me over the years, well, yeah, that was the Apostle Paul who said that and not Jesus. Well, that's a very defective view of Scripture, for one. For two, we're going to be looking at some things Jesus said that might unsettle one who says that. Because election and predestination are all over the Bible, not just here in Romans 9. This is God's holy word. Romans 9 is God's holy word, and it is profitable, therefore, for all Christian believers. As we've said many times before in some of the harder sections of Romans, this was not sent to an academy of theologians. This letter was sent by Paul from Corinth to ordinary Christians in Rome. And so we see it as profitable. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out or inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God, that the church, would be thoroughly equipped and complete for every good work. All Scripture, including Romans 9, is profitable for the believer's walk with God. It's why the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to include this portion of his letter to the church at Rome. But before we dive into this new section of Romans focusing on divine freedom and election, there are four important points that I want to raise by way of introduction. This is a bit of a lengthy introduction. Have no fear. Once we get through it, we will get through my three points rather briskly. Number one, salvation is not a human right it's a divine gift. Amen? It's important to recognize this from the outset because most, if not all, misunderstandings of divine election and predestination are based in some kind of an idea that we have a right to it, that we deserve it in some way. But salvation is not a human right. It's a divine gift. As guilty sinners, we are deserving of God's righteous judgment, full stop. Nothing more. He owes us nothing. Humanity can make no demands of God. It's often because we have too big a view of ourselves and too small a view of God that we so quickly dismiss the doctrine of election. Salvation is not a human right. It's a divine gift. Secondly, secondly our sovereign God freely exercises his sovereign choice according to his holy purpose. Our sovereign God freely exercises his sovereign choice according to his holy purpose. And the Bible is full of examples of God exercising his sovereign choice to show mercy to some while withholding it from others. God also freely chooses specific individuals for significant purposes in redemptive history. For example, think of God choosing Abraham out of all of the idolatrous land of Ur, out of that entire population, he chooses Abraham to receive his saving promises in Christ and the gift of faith. Another example is God's sovereign choice of Jonah. Why Jonah? Out of all the prophets that God could have chosen for this mission, he chooses Jonah, the recalcitrant prophet. Jonah did not choose God's mission. He ran from it. No, God chose the mission, and he chose Jonah to carry it out. And when Jonah fled from it, he chose the whale that would swallow him up to take him to his destination. God did this. When the prophet Samuel went to anoint Israel's future king, remember, he went through all the brothers. Oh, it must be this one. No, it must be this one. No, it must. Went through all the brothers. Well, who could it be then? Well, is it the scrawny shepherd boy out in the field? Well, absolutely, yes it is. This is the one God has chosen over his more outwardly impressive brothers. God chose, saved, and used these men for his own divine purposes and glory. 
Let's fast forward to the New Testament. In John chapter 5, we learn of a, a poor man who was an invalid for 38 years. He was in Jerusalem laying by a pool called Bethesda, where it states in verse 3, where a, quote, now listen, multitude of invalids. There are a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. It is then reported that Jesus healed this man, saying to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Out of all that were there that day, Jesus came to this one man, and he healed him, and he saved him. How about when the crowds were surrounding Jesus, and he noticed the short-statured tax collector named what? Zacchaeus. He was climbing up a tree to get a glimpse at Jesus because he was short. He was known in his town as a greedy man. He was despised. And yet Jesus said, I am going to go to your house today. And he went to his house and Zacchaeus was born again. Then there's Lydia in Acts 16, 11 and following. Do you remember her? Paul and Silas and Luke. I went to Philippi, and uh, there was no synagogue there because there were not enough uh, to worship God and to make up a synagogue. So they went out by the river where they heard there were some ladies that were praying, and they went out there and preached the gospel to them. And then Lydia was saved. It says in verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. It says nothing of the other ladies. Perhaps some of them did come to know the Lord. We don't know, but it says nothing of them only of Lydia, that he opened her heart. And what about the Apostle Paul? What about the Apostle Paul? Of all of the religious leaders, of all the Pharisees, of all of those who were against the Christian faith, he is the one that God chose. And he was the most ruthless, snarling, persecuting Pharisee. And yet the Lord saved him and made him the gospel mouthpiece to the Gentile world. Are you getting the picture here? Are you getting the picture? Over and over and over again, our sovereign God exercises his divine prerogative, his divine prerogative to save whom he pleases, when he pleases, to use whom he pleases, and to leave in rebellion those whom he pleases. He is God, not us. He is the Lord, not us. Praise God, not us. He is the Lord. He does all that pleases Him. So salvation is not a human right. It's a divine gift. The Bible is full of examples of God executing His sovereign choice. And the third point I want to make by way of introduction is that the Scriptures are crystal clear about divine freedom, election, and predestination. The Scriptures are crystal clear about divine freedom, election, and predestination. Really, Pastor John, crystal clear? Really? Yes, really. The Bible is not vague or misty or cloudy on these subjects. In Ephesians 1.4, it states that God, quote, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, God chose us. In verse 11, it states that we've been, quote, predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Acts 13, 48, after the Gentiles heard the gospel from Paul, it states that, quote, they began glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And finally, for those who would say, oh, yes, that's the Apostle Paul saying these things. This is, these are the other apostles, not Jesus. Well, we come to John 6. There are many other places we could go, but for the sake of time, we just come to John 6 and verse 37. Quote, Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Who is going to come to Christ? All that the Father gave to him. Who are those whom the Father gave to him? Those whom the Father set his love and affection upon in Christ before the foundation of the world. 
Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Who will look upon the Son and believe in him and have eternal life? Those who the Father gave to him. Christ died for those the Father gave to him. He was not dying hoping that someone would believe in him and that it wasn't all for nothing. He died for those whom the Father gave to him. Who are those whom the Father gave to them? Those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved. The scriptures are replete with teaching on the sovereignty of God and salvation. And the final point I want to raise is a common objection to the doctrine of election. Divine election is not fair. Divine election is not fair. This is the objection that we will often hear. It's an objection that I had, along with all the other umpteen objections that people come up with. I had them all when I first heard these doctrines. Perhaps you're hearing them for the first time this morning, and you're thinking, nope, don't believe that, don't believe that, nope, 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 nope. Well, listen, I was right there until I came face-to-face with scriptures like the ones that I am reading this morning and that I will preach from this morning. Here we are reminded that God is a sovereign God, and this objection that the election of some and not others is not fair is not a good one. This implies that in some way we deserve salvation, that somehow and in some way God owes us but we don't deserve it. No one does. No one does. When we, what we deserve, dear ones, is the opposite of salvation. The opposite of salvation. What we deserve is God's judgment. When it comes to a right standing with God, the last thing we want, believe me, is fair. When it comes to our standing with God, the last thing we want is fair. Fair means that we all get what we deserve for our guilt and our sin and our falling short of the glory of God. We don't want fair. What we want and what we need is mercy. What we want and what we need is grace. God is not obligated to save all sinners, but thankfully it is his divine purpose to save many sinners. And praise God, it is his will to save many. Charles Spurgeon once said, What amazes me is not that God does not choose everybody, but rather that he chose me. And don't our prayers for our loved ones bring out the reality of this doctrine? How many of us pray pray prayers like this for lost family members? Lord, I pray for my friend Bill. Don't violate his will too much. Make sure that he has a big part in this, but I want you to save him. But don't totally save him. Maybe like 88% and he gets 12. Maybe 99% and what? No, we say, Lord, would you save my friend Bill? Would you... Take out his heart of stone and put in a heart of what? Of flesh. Would you make him and cause him to be born again by your spirit? Would you raise him from spiritual death to spiritual life? Would you do this in him? That's the way we pray for people. And it's because deep down we know God to be God and we know salvation to be of grace, even though later we might start making all kinds of excuses and reasons for why he's not God and not sovereign. And so we come to passages like this, again, to marvel in God's grace, to marvel in his, his, his bigness and his glory and his majesty, that he would love sinners such as we. But ultimately, I share these points by way of introduction for this purpose, to show that Romans 9 is not an anomaly a passage that deviates from the rest of Scripture or is misinterpreted by followers of John Calvin. No, the text that we will unpack over the next few weeks is one part of the whole message of Scripture 
a message that clearly teaches the sovereignty of God in all things, not least the grace-based salvation of sinners. And this is something that was embraced by John Knox, Martin Luther, John Calvin, George Whitfield, so many of the great evangelists and, and Christians and reformers embraced this wholeheartedly. And so we do as well. And please, please take note. Please take note. God exercising his divine freedom in the salvation of the elect is simply God being God. God exercising his divine freedom in the salvation of the elect is simply God being God. And this brings us to the first heading in my outline, which you'll find on page 8 of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. The unfailing word of God. Look with me again at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why did Paul say this? What does this mean? The statement may even seem a little out of place here in the flow of the passage. Well, in the verses that precede it, you'll remember, the apostle expresses his anguish over Israel's rejection of Christ, and then he enumerates all the spiritual blessings and privileges which were designed to point them to Jesus the Messiah. But as I explained last week, Israel rejected Christ and instead put their trust in their own works and in their religious uh, privileges rather than in Christ. So why the statement about God's word here? Well, it's because Paul is anticipating questions about Israel, God's covenant people. He's anticipating questions like, how is God faithful to his covenant promises if the nation of Israel is under his judgment? Aren't these the covenant people of God? Isn't this his chosen nation? Questions like this. If nothing can separate God's people from his love, which is what Paul said in the end of Romans 8, then why is Paul now speaking of Israel as if they are cut off and accursed? Why is Paul saying, I wish that I could be accursed in their place so that they could come to know Christ? Why is he saying things like this? In other words, has God's word failed? Are his covenant promises really true and reliable? Well, the Apostle Paul quickly dispels any uncertainty about the truth and efficacy of God's word. Again, he writes, it is not as though the word of God has failed. And please hear this, dear ones. God's word never fails. He never breaks his promises. We will break our promises from time to time. But God never breaks his promises. He has never broken his word to Israel or to anyone else. Rather, it's Israel who has rejected the fulfillment of God's covenant promises in Christ. It's Israel that has rejected the Messiah, the promised one, who was, states verse 5, from their race and according to their flesh. Bible commentator Frank Thielman explains it well when he says that, quote, Israel's tragic rejection of the gospel and failure to realize the full significance of its privileges does not mean that God who gave Israel these privileges in Scripture promised more than he could deliver. Israel's failure to benefit fully from its privileges does not mean that the word of God has failed, end quote. Beloved, the word of God did not fail. Israel simply did not believe in their Messiah. Rather, they trusted in their spiritual heritage and their good works and their circumcision instead of the person and redemptive work of Jesus Christ. He who is the yes and amen of all of God's promises, the one that all of their privileges pointed to. And this left them in a place of condemnation and separation from God. No one is right with God apart from faith in Jesus. And so he invites sinners to come and to believe on him, to come into his arms and to be saved by his grace. Christ's righteousness alone can meet God's perfect requirements. 
His blood alone can atone for our sins. His resurrection alone can provide victory over Satan, sin, hell, and death. And most of the Jews in Paul's day did not believe this. But it didn't mean that God's word had failed. Let's now bring it a little closer to home, dear ones. When those who have been baptized, raised in godly homes, and grown up in solid churches do not believe, it does not mean that the word of God has failed. It does not mean that the word of God has failed. It is not as though in these instances God's promises were broken. No, sadly what it means is that these individuals have rejected God's saving promises. They have said no to Jesus, no to his mercy and his grace, no to heaven, no to forgiveness, no to mercy. They have said no to Christ. The problem is not with God's word. The problem is with the sinful heart of man who needs grace. But returning to our text, Paul is focusing on Israel here, questions surrounding Israel. He's dealing with these questions for the next three chapters, 9, 10, and 11. He is showing that God's word has not failed by highlighting some very important distinctions, which leads to my second heading, the visible, invisible church distinction. The visible, invisible church distinction. Distinction. Now, I realize I'm going a little bit backwards here, kind of fast-forwarding to a kind of New Testament distinction within the church, but it really does apply, we'll see, to the Old Covenant as Paul lays it out. What is this visible, invisible church distinction that, that all of our Reformed confessions talk about? Well, let's define our terms. What is the visible church? What is the visible church? The visible church is all those who profess faith in Jesus Christ along with their children. It is all those who profess faith in Jesus Christ along with their children. The visible church is a mixture of believers and unbelievers, of wheat and tares, for there will always be hypocrites in the visible church. There will always be hypocrites in the visible church. In other words, there will always be those who profess faith in Christ but are still living in bondage to sin and living in unbelief. But this is the visible church. We, of course, preach the gospel. We preach the law. We preach repentance and faith. We have church discipline and oversight. And so those who uh, show themselves to be non-Christians, of course, and are unrepentant are uh, ultimately removed from the church apart from repentance and restoration. This is the visible church. But then there's what's called the invisible church. What's the invisible church? Well, it's the full number of God's elect from throughout the ages. It's the full number of God's elect from throughout the ages. The true body of Christ, as it were. Those who are by grace through faith, by grace through faith in union with Christ. Again, our Reformed confessions have always made this important biblical distinction of this visible and invisible church to make it clear that while church membership and Christian worship and the means of grace of uh, the word, uh, prayer, and sacraments are vital for the Christian life, these things in and of themselves do not justify us before God. Only by grace through faith in Christ are sinners justified. Amen? We love the means of grace. We love the church. We see the importance of the local church and and being under the the spiritual guidance and oversight and shepherding care of elders. And we we love our baptism and we, we love the Lord's Supper and we love the preaching of the word. But simply having these things does not make us right with God. We must embrace the one to whom they point. And so this is why this distinction is so important. Beloved, understanding this distinction helps us to understand Paul's argument in verses 6 through 13. Paul writes in verse 6, notice, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Here the apostle is contrasting those who are physical descendants of the nation of Israel with those who are of the true spiritual Israel. 
Of course, one can be a member of both, as was Paul and many other Christians of Jewish descent. But this is only true of those who are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Simply being a physical descendant of Israel does not automatically make one a member of the true spiritual Israel and a redeemed child of God. Paul actually made this point all the way back in chapter 2. Now, it's been a while, so let's look there together. Chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Look with me at Romans 2, 28 and 29. Paul writes in verse 28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the what? Of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. Paul, over and over and over again in the book of Romans, is showing us that salvation is by grace. It's not by works. It's not by circumcision. It's not by religious rites. It's not by ethnic ties. It's not by bloodlines. It's by grace. Compare this to John 1, 12, where it states, But to all who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But of God. I don't know what Charles Finney did with this text. But how he could say that the Holy Spirit has little to do with the conversion of man, that God's done all he's going to do, now it's up to us to convince and persuade and lead people to Christ. The Spirit is not involved in this. How he could say this and read verses like this, I do not know. And a whole tradition of Arminian evangelism has happened and crusades and so forth that, that ignore this verse. Because salvation is by God's grace alone, and we must be born again. Salvation through ethnic ties or decisionism is rejected here. Salvation is by grace and supplied by the Holy Spirit. This distinction between natural Israel and spiritual Israel is also seen at the end of Paul's letter to the Galatians. In chapter 6 and verse 16, those who possess true faith, whether Jew or Gentile, are called the Israel of God. Paul calls Jews and Gentiles in the church the Israel of God. This distinction also makes sense, doesn't it, of Israel's long unfaithfulness. Think about the history of the nation of Israel. Any honest reading of the Old Testament reveals how profoundly unfaithful the nation of Israel was throughout its history. So much idolatry. So much blasphemy, so much false worship, so many prophets murdered, and on we could go. Read the book of Judges, for example. Read the major and the minor prophets and all of the extreme unfaithfulness of the northern and southern kingdoms. All of the wicked kings and wicked priests and prophets. The words, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, make a lot of sense. In light of Israel's checkered history. But in the midst of this checkered history, in the midst of all of the wickedness that eventually brought uh, Assyria and Babylon to bring destruction upon the northern and southern kingdoms, amidst all of this, there was always a remnant. Always a remnant. A remnant who lived by grace through faith in God's promises and would not bow the knee to Baal. Now, as we go on, we see that Paul builds on his argument, doesn't he? by drawing attention to Israel's most esteemed patriarch, Abraham. Abraham, when Jesus was speaking with the Pharisees, with the Jews, they, they would often say things like, we are the children of Abraham. This was their man, the one whom they were descended from, and so saw as there's no way we could be separated from God because we have Abraham as our father. And so, Paul draws attention to him, even as he did earlier in Romans 4. 
He draws attention to Abraham and to his son Isaac, the miracle child that was born as a result of God's promise. Here we see the distinction between the children of flesh and the children of what? Of promise. Notice, flesh, promise. Romans 7, excuse me, Romans 9, 7 through 9. Look there with me. Romans 9, 7 through 9. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Pretty straightforward here. It's not Abraham's natural descendants who are his true spiritual sons and daughters. It's those Jews and Gentiles who have saving faith in God's covenant promise fulfilled in Christ. Abraham was saved not by works, but by grace through faith. In Genesis 15, 6, it says that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. The just shall live by faith. And so Abraham's true spiritual offspring are those who have faith in Christ. Again, the book of Galatians sheds light on these verses. <clears throat> Galatians 3.29 says this, quote, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I've shared this story before. Lots of new faces here today, so... Some of you will not know this story. I was in New York City with my wife uh, many years ago, and as we arrived at the airport, a, uh, a Hasidic Jew with the long tendrils and the black hat uh, came up to me and said, uh, are you Jewish? And I said, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not Jewish. He said, okay, and he kind of went on, and uh, then we walked a little farther in the airport, and another one came up to me and said, are you Jewish? And I said, and he had some sheets with him. I said, no. And he said, oh, okay. And it happened a couple more times. I thought, what in the world? This is really strange. And so uh, the next one that came up to me said, are you Jews? I said, no, but why do you want to know? What, what, what's happening? He said, well, uh, we're having a, a celebration um, and uh, we're trying to get, gather Jews together for this and that. I said, oh, okay. Um, well, I said, can I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, um, do you... Um, do you believe in uh, a Messiah? He said, uh, yes, I do believe in the Messiah. I said, oh, you believe, in, you believe in a Messiah? He said, yes. I said, is he coming in the future? He said, no, he's here now in Brooklyn. Excuse me? Uh, I said, he's in Brooklyn. He said, yes. And I said, does he raise the dead? He said, yes. I said, okay. I said, well... Um, I don't know uh, what to say about that, I said, but uh, there was a Messiah that came uh, 2,000 years ago, and he fulfilled all righteousness, and he died on the cross for our sins, and he rose again from the dead for sinners like you and me. And, and you know, I am more Jewish than you are. And he kind of stepped back in this look of consternation. And... Uh, he said, well, what do you mean by that? I said, well, I am part of the true spiritual Israel. Christ came to save Jews and Gentiles. And I am of the true offspring of Abraham. And, um, of course, that conversation didn't go too much longer. Uh, he was not pleased uh, with that, but I hope seeds were planted. And uh, I got to share uh, the gospel of life with him. But that is absolutely true. We are the true spiritual Israel. We who are by grace, through faith, in union with Christ the Messiah. Psalm 67 has a view to, to save all nations, not just one. If you are Christ, Galatians 3.29 says, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Over and over our attention is directed to the promise of God for salvation and not to ethnic ties or good works. And so Paul mentions Isaac, the child of promise. Remember, Isaac, not Ishmael, the son of Hagar, was the child of 
promise. Ishmael was the product of Abraham and Sarah taking matters into their own hands, coming up with their own plan for offspring. It's often how, how we do, isn't it? Uh, we know God is faithful. We know he's made promises to us, but we sort of take matters into our own hands uh, to get the job done. We don't wait upon him. We don't trust him. We just try to do it all ourselves, and we end up making a bigger mess of things than it already was. And this was true of Abraham and Sarah as it concerned Hagar. Ishmael was the product of Abraham and Sarah taking matters into their own hands. But Isaac was the child of promise, born of Abraham and Sarah when their ages were 90 and 100 years old, respectively. But anticipating yet another counterpoint by his detractors, the Apostle Paul provides another example reinforcing that salvation is not by natural descent from a pure bloodline from Isaac, but according to God's promise. You, you can get into Paul's head, and, he, and he's thinking, well, now they're going to say, well, yeah, Isaac is uh, the child of promise because he was born of Abraham and Sarah, and we are in his line, and so we are saved by natural descent just as Isaac was. And so he brings up Jacob and Esau. To show that salvation is according to God's grace and his electing purpose in Christ. He points to the two sons of Isaac, Jacob and Esau, born on the same day. Look with me at verses 10 through 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. In case Paul's Jewish detractors still didn't get it and thought of salvation coming through Isaac's physical line, he directs attention to Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau are a powerful example of divine election, for both were descendants of Abraham and Isaac, and yet only one of them was chosen by God. They were both circumcised. They both had the sign and seal of the covenant of grace, but only one of them had the true circumcision, the circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, and possessed true and saving faith. They were twins. But only one believed, while the other forsook God's promise and his birthright for a bowl of porridge. They both had Jewish blood, but only one of them had saving faith. The main cause of this was not a divine response to Jacob's goodness. That's for sure. Jacob was as much or perhaps more of a sinner than his brother Esau. Jacob was a deceiver extraordinaire. He only deserved God's judgment. No, the main cause or grounds of Jacob's salvation was God's undeserved free electing grace. A grace which finds its ultimate realization in the person and redemptive work of Christ. It wasn't his own works that saved him, nor was it his family ties. It was the fact that God foreloved Jacob before the foundation of the world sovereignly called him from death to life by his spirit and gave him the gift of faith in God's promises realized in Christ. Neither Jacob nor Esau deserved God's grace, but in order that God's purpose of election might stand, might continue, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, quoted from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Now, if the Lord tarries, and I hope he doesn't, we will continue in this passage next week. There are many other questions and objections I think need to be answered in relation to these verses. Perhaps you are thinking of many of them now. For now, I want to briefly consider my last heading, the doctrine of sola gratia accentuated. The doctrine of sola gratia accentuated, that salvation is by grace alone. 
Nothing like the doctrine of divine election highlights salvation by grace alone. In fact, it powerfully demonstrates that salvation is of the Lord. It is nothing we earn or nothing we deserve. We are born into this world with original sin of Adam, depraved in every part of our beings. We are dead in our transgressions and sins and and thus helpless and hopeless to save ourselves. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. A God of grace, a God of abundant mercy towards undeserving sinners. Apart from God choosing and saving, all people would remain in their sin and under His condemnation. But thankfully, thankfully, God demonstrates His grace through His sovereign purpose of election. I want to recommend, uh, warmly recommend, a book to you. Uh, That book is called Putting Amazing Back into Grace. And it's written by Mike Horton. I was speaking to someone this morning about it, and I've given that book away to a lot of people. That book was what really transformed my understanding of of God as sovereign God and of salvation as grace. And the title is wonderful, Putting Amazing Back into Grace, because grace actually isn't so amazing if it's grace plus works. And assurance of salvation gets cut at the knees when salvation is grace plus works because if I am cooperating with God for my salvation and that's how I was saved, then there is a way for me to uncooperate with God and be unsaved. And so I go through this whole life thinking, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. And often it's depending on how one's performance is going in the Christian life. And so it's works-based, it's guilt-driven, it's fear-led rather than God-centered, grace-based, focused on God's mercy and from there to be compelled to live for the glory of God according to His commands with grateful hearts. You see, the doctrine of sola gratia is accentuated by divine election. Apart from God choosing and saving, all people would remain in sin and under his condemnation. But thankfully, he has his sovereign purpose of election. Mike Horton explains that election is of the essence of grace. Quote, you see, we can talk about grace, sing about grace, preach about grace, just so long as we do not get too close to it. Election is too close. When we give in to election, we finally give up on ourselves in the matter of salvation. This doctrine takes grace to its logical conclusion. If God saves me without my works, then he must choose me apart from them too. In another place, he writes this, quote, When I'm talking to someone who has a problem with I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, Romans 9.15, One of the first questions I ask is whether that person believes in salvation by grace alone. Among evangelicals, the usual response is, of course, nothing we do can save us. But then the same person will say, but I'm saved because I said yes to Christ. Election answers, you are saved because Christ said yes to you. It is true that all those who are in Christ at one point in their lives, said yes to Christ and continue to say yes to Christ. But it is only because Christ said yes to us. It is only because the Father said yes to us. It is only because the Spirit said yes to us. And it's that yes that we get up with in the morning with comfort and the joy of our salvation in our hearts, knowing that He will never leave us or forsake us, that His love is everlasting. Dear believer, what a comfort this is. Election is not a doctrine meant to inspire tireless introspection and to undermine assurance. On the contrary, it's intended to teach you that salvation is all of grace, that salvation is a gift from God, and the same God who gave you this gift, who gave you this love and mercy, who gave you Christ, will never take it from you. On your good days... And on your bad days, God loves you the same. 
because he loves you in Christ. And your place in heaven is as secure as Christ is because God chose you in him before the foundation of the world and he united you to him by grace through faith. And one day you will be with him in glory forever. There's, a one, there's one wonderful hymn I wanted to draw your attention to in Gadsby's hymns, a wonderful collection of, of hymns which are not well known. Quote, Salvation by grace, how charming the song. With seraphim join the theme to prolong. T'was planned by Jehovah in council above. Who to everlasting shall rest in his love? This covenant of grace all blessings secures. Believers rejoice for all things are yours. And God from his purpose shall never remove. But love thee and bless thee and rest in his love. But when, like a sheep that strays from the fold, to Jesus thy Lord thy love shall grow cold, think not he'll reject thee, however he reprove, for though he correct thee, he'll rest in his love. In Jesus the Lamb, the Father's delight, the saints without blame appear in his sight, and while he in Jesus their souls shall approve, so long shall Jehovah abide in his love. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Someone once gave an illustration that there is a door. And on it says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You shall be forgiven of all of your sins. You shall be given the gift of righteousness and everlasting life. And as you walk through that door... You look up at the other side and it says, Behold, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. We do not concern ourselves with those mysterious secret things of God. We do not know them. There is no secret tattoo on the shoulder of God's elect. We call people to faith and we know that God works and he draws people to himself. And if you, dear one, are sensing that drawing and that wooing by God to trust in Christ and you've never known him before, then receive him as your Lord and Savior. Believe on him and you shall be saved and have the comfort of his electing love. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this doctrine, for the comfort and the joy it brings, for reminding us that salvation is all of grace and we are objects of your grace and mercy. And oh, how we want to give you praise and glory and obedience in response. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.